When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. But the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Truth and Justice Friday follow-up. Today's episode is the follow-up for episode 253, Loose Ends. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. In episode 253, we updated you on where things stood with Kenny Snow's case and covered as much information as we had at the time about one of our last suspects in Elnora's case, Francis Johnson. And in today's follow-up, we're going to answer questions from you about Kenny and Francis. And at the end of the episode, we're actually going to hear from Kenny Snow. And very quickly before we get started, I wanted to mention again our musician, Shane Yoder, who writes all the music for this show, has created a new company called PutThemInASong.com. By the time this episode drops, we are quickly approaching Valentine's Day. What Shane does is give you the opportunity, whether it's for Valentine's Day or a birthday or a wedding or whatever the case may be, to create a gift that'll last forever. For more information, go to PutThemInASong.com and Shane and his team of musicians in Nashville will create a custom song just for your loved one that you'll have forever. All right, that's enough about that. Let's go ahead and get started. All right, Chief, we're going to go ahead and get right into social media. We've received a lot of questions and comments about Francis Johnson's timeline, especially regarding the laying of the sod. And I know you said that you have some new information about that, so I'll let you take it from here. Okay, thanks, Mike. Later on in this episode during the calls, we get into a little more depth about the actual laying of the sod and if that is or is not possible in Texas in the wintertime. So we'll save that for then. But I do have some more information that might clear up the timeline for us. So remember that the big issue was that at trial one, Francis was telling the story of how he met Elnora and when, and all the dates and times seemed to be jumbling up together. Well, I think now after going back through all these documents, I can definitively say that Francis was not laying sod in the wintertime. And the reason for that is we know when Francis's probation was revoked from Georgia, and we know when he was in Georgia for his court date. During late 1992, Francis was actually on parole from a previous crime in Atlanta, Georgia. His parole was violated because he hadn't checked in with his parole officer or paid any of his fines, and he had fled the state. With these new documents that we have, we now know that in early January, Francis's parole was revoked. 
We have an order in here from January 5th where the judge signed off revoking Francis's probation. And we also have a document where Francis signed off the 72-hour wait for extradition. And we know that he was in court on January 20th in Georgia and that he began his sentence at the halfway house just a couple of days later. So when we figure this into a timeline, Johnny Pryor's husband died in December of 92. His funeral was shortly thereafter, and it was at that funeral when Johnny tells me that Elnora first mentioned that she wanted to move to Tyler. Now we also know from what Johnny has told me and from her testimony that her husband is the one that actually dug the pond. She's also stated emphatically that her husband would not hire someone else to do the work. Francis Johnson was not digging this pond, but he was repairing it, because after Johnny's husband had died, the pond was leaking, and of course he wasn't around anymore to take care of it. That's when she hired Francis to come fix the leaks. Well, if her husband died in December, and it wasn't until that funeral when Elnora decided she wanted to move to Tyler, and she moved into the trailer in early January, there's no possibility that Francis had already been to the pond and fixed the leak and laid the sod. The sod was the last step. And we also know for certain that by January 20th, Francis was already back in Georgia. So I don't think that there is any possibility that the timeline, the way he described it in trial one, is even possible. There's just no way that after the funeral, he immediately got to work, repaired the leaks in the dam, laid the sod, and watered it until it was alive and he got paid, all in a period of about 20 days maximum. Also, let's not forget that at trial two, he said that he was doing that work in the summertime, and his cousin William Scott said he was there with him doing that work in the summertime. As well as Johnny Pryor's testimony, where she said it was done in the summertime, but couldn't remember which year at the second trial. Also, let's not forget that at the second trial, Francis testified that he met Elnora at a party at Johnny's house, not because he was out working on the pond. So the bottom line is that long, chaotic narration during the first trial was exactly what it seemed like. Nonsense. Okay, Chief, we're going to move on to Twitter. At Pebbles for Baby Blue tweets, Wait, did you say that she was on the way back from Ed's store? Ed who? Oh, that's a really good question, and I should have explained that during the episode. So in the note that Ed wrote to himself regarding his conversation with Francis, he says that Francis mentioned that Elnora had just come from Edward's store. That Edward has nothing to do with our Edward. Right around the corner from where Elnora lived was a tiny little corner store called Edward's Store. And that's all that was. Okay, the next one's from Paul Vanette. Paul tweets, Wait, wasn't Francis Johnson the second-to-last call on Elnora's phone log? Late night call, 61 minutes. How is that no relationship? Thanks, Paul, for that tweet. And you're right, if that was the case, then it would be hard to make the argument that there was no relationship. But the fact is, if you remember, we don't know that that was Francis Johnson's phone number. That 61-minute call is to the number that we referred to as the unknown Kilgore number. And to this date, we have been unable to track down who that number belongs to. We've speculated that it could have been Francis's phone number, but at this point, we have no proof of that. Okay, I've got several tweets here from at Junkie, but I've compiled them all into one message. Okay. If Bill can't talk, is there a way to use the information you recorded him saying in court any way at all? I thought there was a rule about incapacitation or death that the person's witnessed words count. In this case, can the audio help Kenny in any way? Okay, thank you, Brooke. There is, in fact, a rule that may allow something like that in. I do not quite understand it. I don't know the ins and outs of it, so maybe one of our attorney friends can get back to us on that. 
but that's actually how they got Kubia's statement about the phone call to Elnora in. That call should have been hearsay, but there was some legal maneuvering done to allow the call in because Elnora was not there to present it herself. In this particular case with Bill Cole, I don't know the answer to that. Kenny's attorney Susan didn't seem really confident about it when we spoke about it a few weeks ago, and to be honest, I don't think that recording will be enough. During that recording, I was showing Bill photographs of cars on my phone. I didn't have printed photos at the time, so I had nothing for him to sign off or initial. So really all we have is a recording of Bill saying, that's not the car, but nothing identifying which car I showed him. And all we really have other than that is a man who's saying that he doesn't remember being shown mugshots more than once, but unfortunately because of Bill's sense of humor, he didn't sound perfectly clear. When I asked him the question both about how many times he was shown mugshots and whether he had been in court, he responded both times, well, oh, let me think, I've slept since then. No, I wasn't. Even though I know that he was joking from our previous conversation before we started recording, just the fact that he said those words first, I believe that in court, that would bring the credibility of the statement into question, which would be fine if we had Bill to put him on the stand or if we had an affidavit from him. That's why after getting that statement, we printed off all the photos and printed off the mugshots and printed off the composite sketch and typed out affidavits so that we could get a clear and concise record of what Bill was saying. But that's what never happened. So I guess the short answer to your question is, no, I don't believe that we're going to be able to use Bill's statements to me. All right, Chief, and finally, we've got one last tweet here from TJ Cunahan. Okay. They did an autopsy on Elnora, right? If so, wouldn't that have shown signs of a fight or struggle? I'd think that would disprove the Francis Johnson beating her up story. Well, the problem is that in the autopsy, it absolutely did show signs of a struggle. I know this was months and months and months ago, but in the autopsy, it showed that she had bruises and cuts all over her face. It looks as though she had been punched or hit in the lip. There were scratch marks on her, bruises on her back. So the autopsy does definitely show that there was a struggle, which does still leave the story that Francis told Ed in jail in play. Okay, Bob, before we get into calls, we've got a voicemail here that answers a question from last week. All right, here we go. Hey, Bob, this is Dan from down here in Tyler, and you were wanting to know what an inquest was. An inquest is if you have any kind of death outside of the hospital that you cannot get a doctor to sign off on the death certificate, you have to call in a judge, like a JP, to pronounce them dead and decide if they want to say it's unusual circumstances and ask for an autopsy. Thank you. Okay, well, that answers that question. Thank you so much, Deanne. Now let's get right into our phone calls. Okay, I am on the air with Judy from Indianapolis. How you doing tonight, Judy? Wait. Hey, wait, good. How are you? Wait, 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 wait. I screwed that up. Hang on. All right. <laughs> God, every time. Here we go. All right. Serious face. All right, I'm on the air today with. All right, I'm on the air tonight with Julie from Indianapolis. Oh God, I know that Mike is going to leave that in and make me look like an idiot. Absolutely. <laughs> How you doing tonight, Julie? I am doing great. How are you? I'm doing really well. So Mike says you might have some info for us about sod. I do. Very interesting topic. Interesting as dirt. Um, I work in the environmental field. So I was very excited to find a topic maybe I could help on. But 
when I started to dig back through that kind of nonsensical transcript from Francis Johnson that you were reading last week about how he broke up with Elnor or how he met her. Was I crazy or did you also find that to be completely nonsensical? No, that was nonsensical. I listened to it again today and then I came home and read it and I, I think he was just nervous. I have no idea what he was saying. But if you thought that was in the winter, and then other transcript, I don't know if that one, the nonsensical one was the first or the second transcript, but the other transcript mentioned that he thought that he was fixing the dam in either July or August. And he wasn't sure on the timeline, but he mentioned it would have been July or August, which makes a lot more sense, although you can put sod down in the winter. Yeah, I, I noticed the same thing, and that's why part of it was baffling me is because in the second trial, he says that it was in the summer, July or August. But the first trial, he says that he was working on the sod when he met Elnora. Johnny had just told me last week or two weeks ago when I was in Texas that the, 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 the quote, party where Elnora decided she was going to move down there or move over there to Tyler was actually like a reception type of thing they had at her house after her husband's funeral, which was in December of 92. So Elnora didn't know she was going to be moving down there until December of 92. It was just the the way he was kind of putting together the timeline, he made it sound like it was before she moved down there when he was doing the sod, which would could only have been December. Uh, so, yeah, that was one mm -hmm. thing that there's a direct conflict there between that and what uh, his cousin William Scott said and what he said in the second trial. But then you said you also know a little bit about, because of your profession, putting sod down in Texas in the wintertime. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Indiana, so I'm not so much specifically Texas, although I did look up the average temperatures there from the historical data. And to, when you put sod down, you want it to be pretty consistently around 60. And it looks like the averages uh, in Gainesville, which is the seat of Cook County, the temperatures were maxing out and an average of about 50 degrees. They didn't get any snow. They got a couple inches of rain. So you could put it down, but as he said, he wouldn't get paid until he could show that it was living. So that wouldn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. Now, is that is that air temperatures or soil temperatures? That was the air temperatures. So, yeah, I, I don't know anyone who would do that unless, you know, he works in construction and that is the off season for construction. So it could be he was just putting it down and then he was going to go back when it was warmer and really water it. You know, and, and all in all, looking at all of the evidence, I believe he put it down in the summertime, but it was just interesting question. I had a few other listeners that had tweeted in or emailed in that are actually working landscaping in Texas that said that, that they mm. do lay sod in Texas in the wintertime, which I've always had mm. bad experiences. You know, when I have to make a trip to Texas from freezing cold Michigan, which you're familiar with being just a little yeah. ways away down there in Indianapolis, <laughs> I'm always looking forward to going down to the nice hot temperatures. And every time I go down there, it's 40 degrees and raining. So I haven't seen this really hot, hot uh, wintertime in Texas. But yeah, so it sounds like it, it is, from what you're saying and other, these other listeners have said, it is feasible or possible that he could have planted the sod in or put down the sod in December. But given the timelines that we know and the other evidence, I still don't think that's when he put the sod down. No, it doesn't seem like it. Nope. Well, hey, Julie, thank you so much for calling. And I apologize for butchering your name at the beginning. That is okay. I uh, appreciate you talking with me, and I really appreciate all your work and uh, been listening since the beginning, and I'm just really impressed. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Julie. We look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thank you. Good yeah. night. Bye. All right. I am now on the air. Whoa, what's going on? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I wasn't expecting you, and I'm in the middle of making dinner, and I set down a metal lid on my stove. I apologize. Yeah, making some blue apron, no less, right? 
right? Just say, I, say sure. it was, yeah, it was Blue mm-hmm. Apron. You use promo code Truth. Uh, you're making right. making some meal that I don't know how to pronounce. Right. <laughs> this young lady that's cooking dinner right now is Jackie from Kalamazoo, and my screen says Jackie has a burning question about Kubia, and I'm all about some burning questions. What do we got? I am a latecomer to the show, and so I listened through as fast as I could because I really wanted to get the answer to this question, and nobody ever asked. Part of the big evidence that they used against Ed was this conversation between Elnora and Cubia, where Elnora told Cubia that she was sitting there talking to Ed. And I have never been able to figure out why that means that Ed was in her house. Because I feel like I recall you saying that they never pulled Elnora's phone record. So how do we know that Ed didn't call her about some, you know, project or she called him or whatever? You know what I mean? Because like right Right. now I'm sitting here talking to you. You are not in my house. (laughs) So you think I'm not in your house. Turn around. (laughs) No. That's actually a great point, and you have the exact same point that Tom McClain was making at trial. And I think you're right. I don't know that I've ever really brought this up, but the main defense that Ed's attorneys used at trial about that phone call was exactly what you just said. And I don't know that we really covered it too much, but they were asking when Kubi was on the stand, are you sure that he was there? And she just kept saying, he said, all I know is she said, I'm sitting here talking to Edward. Edward Lewis, Mrs. Dew's grandson. That's all I know. And they actually did pull Elnora's phone records. The problem was the only phone records they got were like her billing records that only showed long distance calls. So we we have all the correspondence to Leonard Mosley, but we don't have calls coming from Leonard Mosley. It would have been nice if they had pulled his phone records also, but we don't have any local calls. So And Kubia was a local call, so we have no idea when that call took place, and we don't know if she was, of course, talking on the phone to Edward. We wouldn't know that either. But the argument was made at trial, and they kept asking Kubia at the second trial over and over again, do you know if Elnora had call waiting? And It ended up, I'm sure, falling flat to the jury because it just kept, they just kept hammering at home, and Kubia mm-hmm. wasn't biting. You know, they said, does she have call waiting? No, I don't think she does. Are you sure she doesn't? Well, no, I guess I don't know. Could she have been on the other call? And Kubia keeps saying, no, because you hear that click, and I didn't hear a click. And well, are you sure she could have been on Well, no, I didn't hear the click. Kubia wasn't arguing the point. She was just saying, no, I didn't hear a click. I don't think she was on the other line. That wouldn't answer the question anyway, because if she was on the phone with Ed, then Kubia calls. You don't hear a click when you're the new caller. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Right. Well, and she was saying, she kept saying, and it was like driving me crazy reading the transcripts because I'm, I'm thinking about, of course, now we all have cell phones, but back then when you had, you know, you would push the little button on your receiver down to, I don't know if you're old enough and you don't have to tell me, but I'm old enough. Oh, to, I am. <laughs> to the handheld receiver, you push the button down to click over and you would hear right. that click when they hung up. And that's what she was saying is I didn't hear the click when she hung up. Uh, so it must've been a normal hang up. What I couldn't figure out is if they were going to try to make that argument, why didn't they ask her, are you sure she hung up first? Say she was on the other line. And then Kubia's like, okay, I'll talk to you later. And Kubia hangs up, and then Elmora switches over. She wouldn't have heard the click, but they never made that point. But really, at the end of the day, it all ends up being moot because you know I've asked Ed about it. I asked him, were you talking on the phone to her? And he's like, no, I've never in my life talked on the phone with her. That was going to be my follow-up question, too, is whether he acknowledged that he had ever said. 
I believe he's told me he's never talked on the phone with her. He definitely wasn't talking on the phone with her that night. I mean, he's he's maintained always that he just like it, he just wasn't there. He, he he has no explanation as to why Elnora said that, but he says he he was not there. He was not on the phone to her. She lived two doors down. I mean, it's literally down the hill, and you're there. He would just walk down there if he wanted to talk to her. And he was at Johnny's an hour before that, which is right next door. There's right. no reason for him to have called on the phone. So it ends up being moved. But it's a good point because I, I do think that's something that I've never actually really discussed on the show uh, as far as that was the defense's argument was that it was could have been call waiting. Well, I'm glad that they picked up on that at least. I'm disappointed that it didn't help. Yeah, unfortunately it did not. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for calling in. I'm going to let you get back to cooking your Blue Apron at blueapron.com <laughs> slash truth. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. All right. And thank you so much for your support. Have a great night, Jackie. You too. Bye. Bye. Okay. Uh, for our last call of the night, I am on the air with a major celebrity calling <laughs> all the way from South Bend, Indiana, which is like 20 minutes from me. I have Brooke Giddings of the Actual Innocence Podcast on the line. How you doing tonight, Brooke? I'm good. How are you, Bob? Doing really well. So Mike says you've got a question about Kenny Snow. I do. You know, I was listening to your last episode, and I heard about the trouble with Bill Cole, and I was just wondering if Kenny knew if anybody had talked to him. Actually, that's a great question to kind of transition, because shortly before we started recording this, Kenny actually called, and I recorded a little bit of that. And so I'm going to make you wait until Friday morning to hear the episode, to hear what Kenny actually had to say. All right. Well, thanks, Brooke, for calling in. I really appreciate it and really enjoy your show. For anybody that's listening that hasn't checked out the Actual Innocence podcast, it's amazing. Let let me ask you a question for a minute, Brooke. Can you explain to my audience what the Actual Innocence podcast is? Well, I started it because I didn't know that wrongful convictions exist. And so now it's kind of just bringing awareness that wrongful convictions exist. And a majority of the episodes are people who are wrongfully convicted telling their stories. So it's more powerful, I think, to hear it from them. And they're great. I, I I listen to them all the time. And Brooke, she does interviews with the exonerees. And it, it's a great show. I highly recommend checking it out. And I also want to thank you, Brooke, for being a big supporter of our show. I know you you listen all the time and you're always asking questions on those social media and stuff. So it was great to hear from you tonight, Brooke. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great night, Brooke. <laughs> you too. As you just heard on my call with Brooke, I finally had the opportunity to talk to Kenny Snow yesterday. And I'm going to be honest with you, it was a heartbreaking conversation. I had actually sent Kenny a letter a couple of weeks ago letting him know what had happened. But at the time when I sent the letter, Kenny's unit happened to be on lockdown. And somehow my letter got lost in the shuffle. So when Kenny called me yesterday, he had no idea that Bill Cole had had a stroke. Kenny was in fact devastated. My explanation to him was met with moments of silence and the starting of sentences that never ended while Kenny processed what I had just told him. Once Kenny was able to pull himself together, the first thing that he told me was that he's going to be praying for Bill Cole to recover. He then asked a lot of questions about his case, mostly wanting to know whether or not he still has a chance. I had to tell him that it's still possible, but the outlook is pretty grim at this point. Kenny pulled himself together and told me that he's going to be all right and that he's not going to let this get him down. He said that regardless of what happens next, his life has forever been changed by what we've done over the last year. The thing that has meant the most to him is all of the support that he's gotten from all of you listeners. And he wanted me to make sure to tell you that he really, really loves all the letters everyone sent him, 
but that he's not always able to write everyone back. And a lot of times the reason for that is that when you send him a message through JPay, he doesn't have a return address unless you type it into your letter. So he wanted to make sure I passed that message along to all of you. And for me, as we move forward and move on to our next case, I'm going to ask for all of you not to leave Kenny behind. At this point, we don't know what's going to happen next for him. But whatever happens next, it'll be easier for him to deal with when he knows that he has the love and support of people from around the world. So please keep Kenny in your thoughts and prayers, keep sending him letters, and try to help us all keep his spirits up. Before I got off the phone with Kenny, he asked if I could turn on my recorder because he wanted to send a message to all of you personally. Uh, I tell all the listeners to truth and justice. Uh, thank you for uh, all the, the cards and JPEGs and letters and things that, that, I, that I got. And I'll, I'll continue to keep myself up. I'm not going to let this get me down. I, I believe that, that uh, my attorney, she knows what she's doing. She's going she's gonna to help get me out of here. I thank y'all. I love my, I like to say hello to my aunt Leola in Florida and my, my sister Kim in Paula in Ohio. Kenny Snow has forever changed my life, and he's also forever changed a lot of yours. And let's never forget that if it wasn't for Kenny, Edward Aids would most certainly die in prison. It's because of his insistence that I looked into Ed's case that he now finally has a chance to go home. From the very beginning, Kenny has always told me that he's always been a fighter. And he may be down right now, but the blizzard is never out. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. I want to thank Amanda Meyer at willowphotoanddesign.com for creating the logo for the follow-up episodes. I also want to give a special thanks to Shane Yoder, who's created all of our music. And again, I would ask all of you to consider going to putthemin-a-song.com to have Shane and his team create a custom song for you and your loved ones. I want to thank our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. And as always, I want to thank all of you, every single one of you, for all of your support in every way that you've ever given it. Without you, the Truth and Justice movement means nothing. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send in new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.